0: We are continuing today in a series that we started a couple weeks ago on anxiety. It's called Not Alone, Facing Anxiety, Fear, and Worry Together. Uh, and it has been, I think, just a really powerful series. We've gotten a lot of feedback from you that it's powerful, but frankly, it's been really powerful for me as well. We, we don't choose sermon series based on what's good for Jason, uh, mostly, <laughs> but it's, it's great when it lines up. I am a person who is just naturally sort of high-strung, Uh, just sort of kind of a worrier, just kind of an anxiety person. I I think, for instance, that I can come up with the worst case scenario of just about anything. When I know that I have a tough meeting that I'm about to go into, I have these things that I'm sure others of you have. I call them the pre-conversation conversation, conversation, where I like work through how this conversation is going to go. And I imagine all the things that this person is going to say and exactly what I'm going to say if so-and-so says such and such. And By the time I get to the actual conversation, I'm like so worked up and amped up that there's no chance I'm going to bring health to this conversation at all. And and what's funny is conversations, I don't think it's ever actually played out the way that I imagined it in my mind that it would. And so not only is it not accurate, it's not helpful, frankly. And yet knowing that, I still do it. I have this fear that somehow things are going to go badly. And so I'm all prepped and ready for a fight. When, in fact, it's not reality at all. A friend of mine sent me a quote this week that I think is really good. Fear takes a future possibility and makes it my present reality. We can live in this reality that's based on fear, that's based on something that's not even happened yet, and yet it impacts us like it is. Chris talked about uh, last week about how nighttime can be one of the worst, where your monkey brain wakes you up and starts telling you all the things that you should worry about tomorrow. And so he actually has developed a system where he keeps post-it notes by his bed. And so he writes these things down. He could say to that, that monkey brain, you know, thank you for that information. I'll write this down and address it tomorrow. If you don't know what a monkey brain is, you should watch last week's sermon. That'll make a lot more sense. Uh, but I'm getting post-it notes is the point that I took away from it. At any rate, I'm a, I'm a worrier just naturally. I come to it naturally. I come from a long line of worriers on both of my parents' sides. We have a long and proud tradition of worry in our family. And I think for a long time I, I I dismissed it as just being cautious, of just being sort of a little tightly wound. I even came up with a system where I, I, I like I I thought maybe I'm just really good at an anticipating failure in myself and others. <laughs> but then I realized that's not actually a thing. That's not actually like a skill, anticipating failure. And it wasn't until about ten years ago that I realized this this is more than just I'm kind of tightly wound. I'm I'm kind of a worrier. Uh, and so I went in and I talked to somebody and about 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with both anxiety and depression. And that was just kind of a kick in the gut a little bit like, no, that, that feels like a brokenness. I'm not broken, you know? And for 10 years, I've kind of worked through what are, what are medications that could be helpful? What are systems and, and thought patterns that can be helpful? And I've experimented with a lot of different things. I've experimented with some unhealthy coping mechanisms as well during that time and trying to wrestle with how do I live in this and through this and experience God in the midst of this thing. That's not going to just go away. My circumstances didn't create this in me. And so changing my circumstances isn't going to fix this in me. I mean, certainly circumstances can exacerbate that which is already there. But this isn't something that is episodic, that that has been done to me. This is part of who I am and how do I live in the midst of that. And so this series has been really, really good. And it's caused me personally to do some reflections on what are the things that have been healthy and experienced growth and caused growth and health to happen in me. But also, what are some of the things that I've done, some thought patterns that I've lived in that perhaps have contributed more to the unhealth in me? What are the ways in which my behaviors and my attitudes can actually allow anxiety to take back some hard-fought ground? It's been good. And this jumping, the jumping off point for this series comes from the New Testament book of Philippians, where the Apostle Paul, who's writing from prison as an old man, after a lifetime of persecution and abuse and slander and torture, was able to write, to write these words. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This man who had experienced so much pain, who had every right to be angry and bitter and anxious and depressed, who had suffered so much, instead says he's content in any and every situation. That's profound. In fact, I think what Paul is presenting to the church in Philippi and perhaps to us today is that contentment is the antidote to anxiety. There's a place to write that in your notes. But perhaps you'll notice that I actually put a question mark at the end of that. Not because that's a question like of anxiety. (laughs) But I think this statement in and of itself is perhaps incomplete. I think it's true. And yet it's incomplete. It's not like there's a formula. Like just work harder on being content and then you won't have anxiety. It it simply doesn't work that way. And I think maybe it's just too strong. Like if you just try harder to be content, you won't worry. And Paul himself alludes to this. Notice he says in verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He doesn't say I've learned that obvious truth that is just apparent and easy to pick up. I have learned the secret to being content in every situation. So what is that secret? I want to know that secret. I want to know how this guy was able to find that sort of contentment in the midst of that sort of pain. The kind of contentment that would settle my anxious mind and thoughts. To experience the kind of contentment that makes me, uh, takes me off the roller coaster of my circumstances... And allows me to live grounded and centered and have joy in any and every situation. To allow me to live a life where anxiety doesn't get to determine my view of the world. My experience of life. And I think many of us in this room can relate to that. A vision of what it would be like to live from a place of joy and centeredness. Instead of giving up hard fought ground to anxiety. So how do we get there? I think to go there to see what Paul, how Paul learned this, we need to go back a few verses to a passage that we've been walking through. It's Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4, and as you turn there, uh, I want to let you know that if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to send one home with you. We've got them at the tables, and we invite you to take one as you go today. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, let me read it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So over the past three weeks, we've talked about verses four and five. But there's something interesting, I think, that happens that's sort of weird in the structure of these verses I want to point out. See on line three there, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, period. Oh, and the verse numbers aren't in here. That would be helpful for you guys to see. I just realized that. I didn't realize it during the first service. But at any rate, (laughs) um, there's a period that appears after the word everything or everyone, but it's not a new verse. In fact, that new sentence is actually part of the next verse, verse six. So they're taking and they're putting a a verse starting halfway through a sentence. Verse six starts on, do not be anxious about anyone. And you're like, "That's interesting grammar. Thanks for that lesson. But what's interesting is we tend to learn verses based on where the number starts. And so this verse that we've often learned, many of us have learned is do not be anxious about anything starts with a don't and therefore feels like a command. And so when we experience fear, when we experience depression, when we experience anxiety, not only do we feel those things, but we feel shame and guilt that we have failed to live up to an expectation of God. But if we take that phrase, the Lord is at hand, and we realize that it's not the end of verse 5, it's the beginning of verse 6. I think what Paul is actually saying is, the Lord is at hand, therefore do not be anxious about anything. Some, uh, one one um, commentary that I read said that Paul is purposely echoing the words of Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is close to all who call on him. I think what Paul is communicating here is that God is here. God is with us so we don't have to be afraid. Anxiety isn't necessary because God is at hand. God is with us and brings comfort to us. We don't have to be afraid. I, I think it was two weeks ago now, we were over at some friend's house uh, in the evening and as a family, and we got back kind of late at night, and we pulled into the driveway, and as I was getting out of the minivan, I looked over into my car, and I was like, oh, that's weird. What's all over the inside of my car? And then I realized, oh, that's the contents of my glove box. Oh, someone was in my car while we were gone. And, I, and it wasn't that big of a deal. I, I think the only thing I lost was a pair of dollar store sunglasses, so not a huge loss, but I turned to my wife and said, oh, hon, somebody was in the car, they went through my glove box, and great, now my car smells like cheap cologne and cigarettes, and I, it was kind of joking about it, you know? And I didn't realize that my daughter, Ellie, who's six, was listening, and what was kind of funny to me was terrifying to her. I mean, I just, you know, it's not that big of a deal, and she's afraid of nothing, but that night, she, didn't, she couldn't be alone. From that moment on, the rest of the evening, I had to be right with her because my presence was comfort. My presence represented safety to her. And because she's six, she still knows that. We forget that when we are in fear, when we are in anxiety, we want to be with our father, with our dad, with our parent. Because there's comfort in that place. And that message runs through all of the Old Testament. Genesis 26, 24 says, do not be afraid for I am with you, God says. As Israel was entering into this scary new promised land, God said, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Deuteronomy 31, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. Psalm 23, one of the best known psalms in scripture. They we're so familiar with It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you go back through, and it's interesting, the entire Old Testament has this theme, this message, that God is with us, walks alongside of us, guides us, and protects us. God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. Max Lucado, in the book that we've been recommending throughout the series, points out that the New Testament actually begins with that same message that God is with us. He says, in the ultimate declaration of communion, God called himself Emmanuel, which means God with us. He became flesh. He became sin. He defeated the grave. And he's still with us. In the form of his spirit, he comforts, teaches, and convicts. God so wants us to understand him as being with us and experience him as being with us that he names himself God with us. I think it's a picture of his heart. And then the whole rest of the New Testament is full of these sorts of references. Each case saying God, God is saying, don't be afraid, fear not, I am with you. I go before you. It's has its presence, the comforts. So on one hand, it's clear, it's good news that scripture wants us to understand this. I mean, hundreds of references throughout scripture bring this home. That's great news. God is with us. The bad news is it takes hundreds and hundreds of references for people to get it. They had to be constantly reminded, I'm with you, I'm with you. From the beginning in Genesis all to the end, they're getting this message of, don't forget, I'm with you. Apparently, there's something about God's presence that isn't so obvious to people that they can't forget it. There's something about God's presence that that the way in which we are designed is not so obvious to us that we don't easily overlook it. And so people need to be reminded again and again. And here in Philippians, at the end of Paul's ministry, he's reminding his readers again that God is with us. The Lord is at hand. But I think this is part of where we get to the secret. I think part of the secret that Paul is learning is that God is with me. God is with me in the midst of the storm. God is with me when I was shipwrecked. God was with me as I was whipped. God was with me as I was arrested and persecuted and tortured. God was with me and present in all of that. And then Paul goes on. He says, because God is with you, you don't have to worry. Don't worry, he says. He gives them a don't. But then more importantly, he gives them instead do. Let's read Philippians 4. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be known to God. The, the good news isn't simply that God is present. Yes, that is certainly good news. God is present and he's with us through all of these circumstances in life. But even better, God is present and he cares. He cares. He's not simply an observer; he is active and he cares, and he wants us to bring our concerns and our hurts and our fears and anxieties to him. And again, scripture is full of that message: God wants us to ask. First Peter five seven says, "Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you." God invites us to ask. God wants us to ask. James four says, "You don't have because you don't ask." God wants us to ask. Jesus in Matthew 7 is teaching a crowd. And he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who asks receives. Interesting. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him instead a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? Jesus is teaching him the nature of God, and He wants us, He wants this this audience, and us to understand that God is a good dad. He is a good parent who gives good gifts to His kids. John Piper, who's a local pastor, was a local pastor and author, points out, however, that Jesus never says in here that ask and you will receive exactly what you are asking for. It only says that if you ask, God will give you good things, that which is good for you, which doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easy for you. But God wants us to ask. Jesus later in the Luke of the gospel of Luke is coming to Jericho and a blind beggar calls out to him from the side of the road. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. It's always been kind of a weird passage for me, a weird story, like elsewhere in scripture, it was obvious that Jesus knew the hearts and the desires of the people around him. So Jesus knows what this guy wants. And Jesus knows that this guy is blind. And so it's weird. He goes, what do you want me to do for you? And I think it'd be easy to interpret that sort of as Jesus holding the power over him and saying, I want you to beg for it. But I don't think that's not the picture that Jesus says. That's not what Jesus' response indicates. He says, it's your faith that has healed you. Somehow, in this man asking, he demonstrated faith. And I think that's a truth that we can take from this. There's a place to write that in your notes. When we ask God, we demonstrate faith. Maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's a tiny little mustard seed of faith. But when we ask, we're bringing whatever faith we have to God and saying this situation, this relationship, this career thing, this parenting thing, whatever it is, this, whatever you have, God, it's broken. And you said I should ask, and so I am. It's saying, God, help. Father, help. Bring your good thing into this bad situation. When we ask, we're demonstrating faith. But I think it's more than that, though. I think in prayer, in asking God, we acknowledge a number of realities. I think we acknowledge, and there's a place to write this, you know, we acknowledge God's presence. We sang about that this morning. Let us become more aware of your presence. It's easy to sing these words. We sang "There's there's nothing as good as being in your presence. And yet most of us live our lives unaware that we are in the very presence of God, that he is around us all the time. God is present to us. Are we present to him? Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who just clearly is not even aware that you're there? and just isn't that interested that you've in their presence it feels crummy and yet i know that i do that regularly to god god is present and he wants to be in sustaining relationship life-giving relationship with us and when we pause when we stop from the busyness and turn and simply acknowledge the presence of God, that is an invitation. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You are already here. What we are doing when we say that is simply saying, God, we acknowledge your presence. And when we ask of God, we acknowledge that his presence is here and his desire is to be with us. I think when we ask, we, there's a place to write this in your notes. When we ask, we acknowledge our need. When we pause and when we ask God, we in very real ways stop running from the things that we fear. Stop running from the things that are causing anxiety in us. And we together with God turn toward them and name them and bring them before God. We acknowledge our need. And we acknowledge our attempts to fix it on our own or bury it on our own or cover it up. On our own, those coping mechanisms that a lot of us do to try to pretend like it's not there. One of the main themes that runs through all of Scripture is humanity's constant attempt to do it on their own. But God designed a system where we can't, where we actually need Him, where He is central to how we will experience hope and joy and centeredness and contentment. In our lives. And so when we bring our cares and our concerns to God and to one another, we acknowledge that we need God. We acknowledge that we need each other and that it's by design. Chris brought that up, uh, I think, last week, where he said, We will be happiest and most content and most fulfilled when we live within the designer's construct. And that's the last point there. We acknowledge the creator's design. We acknowledge that this is how we're wired and we naturally want to live outside of those boundaries. But when we allow ourselves to live by the Creator's design, we will experience the life that He has for us. So what happens when we do? What happens when we are willing to stop and to pause and to turn and to ask God? Let's read next verse, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that... Um, Paul here, like Jesus back in Matthew, he doesn't say, ask God and God will give you whatever you want. He says, ask God, bring your worries and your anxieties and your fear and your depression and God will give you peace. That's the promise that he makes. Not even that he'll fix it, but that he'll give you peace in the midst of it. And that peace, that peace surpasses all understanding. He says, what does that even mean? I mean, we read peace and we're like, yep, I'll take that. That sounds great. My house could use some peace. (laughs) But that's not just what he's saying. It's, It's not just peace. It's the peace of God. God who is peace, who dwells in total peace and shalom with himself. And gives that shalom, peace to his people. He will give us that sort of peace. Shalom is a concept that is a Jewish concept that we don't talk a lot about in the Christian church. It's one of the things that we didn't really carry forward for some reason. And it's a central theme that should have been. This idea in the Old Testament of shalom is is wholeness, is integrated, integral, at rest, at peace, well being. It's the centeredness that goes way beyond like. Really great peace, super duper peace. Best peace ever. It's a supernatural peace. It's a wholeness that we can't experience in this fallen, broken world. And yet that's the peace that Paul is promising in response to anxiety when we ask. It means peace that we could never accomplish in this world. It's like extraterrestrial peace. It's the peace that Jesus promises his disciples as he's leaving them at the end of his ministry on earth. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. And here Paul is saying, that's the peace of God that you will experience if you ask God. And not only will we experience it, but that peace, he says, will guard your hearts and your minds In Christ Jesus. The word that he uses here for guard. Is actually like a military term. It's this picture of. uh, That this peace will actually build a garrison. Around your heart. will Build a fortress around your heart. And for a Jewish audience. The heart would have been the very center. Of how they understood their their being. Uh, Everything comes out of the heart of the person. It's why in Proverbs. The the author says above all else. Guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of. And here Paul is saying that peace will do what wisdom was supposed to do in in Proverbs. It will guard it for you. It will guard your heart, but not just your hearts, also your thoughts. The very thoughts that often deceive us, that speak lies to us about our failings and our shortcomings and our anxieties. It will guard the very thoughts that often keep us from turning to God. And instead, turning to those coping mechanisms that we have in our lives, the escape hatches that we build into our lives. Peace, overwhelming extraterrestrial peace of God, is what Paul is promising. Will God instantly just heal us? Will He instantly just fix it? Will God immediately give us whatever He asks for? That's not what Paul's promising, at least in part because that's not what Paul experienced. That's not Paul's story. Many of you remember that Paul, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, says that he had what he called a thorn in his flesh. He doesn't give us any other detail about what that means. It's a strange expression, a thorn in his flesh. He describes it simply as a messenger from Satan to trouble me. A messenger. makes me wonder what those messages were. They were being spoken to paul's life people have speculated for centuries since paul wrote this people have speculated what that means a thorn in the flesh and i'm purely speculating when i say i think it's possible that thorn in his flesh was was some sort of mental illness it was anxiety it was depression it was fear it was, it's very possible he doesn't give us what it means but certainly it could mean that And Paul says he asked God multiple times to remove this thorn, this affliction. He asked. He went to God and asked. And here's what happened. It says, let's read. I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. But he said to me, my grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. And there's that phrase again. Therefore, I am content. He doesn't write, therefore, I am resigned to. Therefore, I am unwillingly going to accept. I will somehow endure through. I am content He says in this, Paul had discovered the secret to contentment in any and every situation. Paul acknowledged that God was present with him and taught that God was present with him. He brought his stuff to God. Whatever that thorn is, he brought it to God. And God gave Paul what he needed most. Peace, contentment, even joy. Paul writes, rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. That sounds so simplistic. It's so easy to dismiss it. It sounds flippant. But those aren't my words. Those are the words of a man who experienced so much pain, so much suffering, so much loss, so much grief, and somehow so much God. There's credibility to that. Have we had that sort of experience of God? And if not, what's keeping us from experiencing that God with us that, could, that Paul has experienced? So that we could have joy, we could have peace, we could have stability in the midst of the storm. I posed that question to a couple of friends this week as I was processing and writing. And my friend Susie wrote back. She replied with this, anxiety is exhausting. It's the nonstop internal critic. I like that. We need space to rest. Our brains are not meant to function at the pace we go in our culture. I think this is what Chris said a couple weeks ago. Science is catching up with scripture. Our brains, our bodies can't handle the pace of life that we try to keep them at. And if we never pause, if we never stop, then we never reflect and even ask the question, what is causing this unsettledness in me We're not even aware of of the pain that's doing damage to us and to the relationships in our lives. And anxiety keeps us on that hamster wheel. The pace of life is so crazy. Then you add the adrenaline shot of anxiety. We're too busy to reflect, too busy to even understand the anxiety that owns us. Susan Ward, who many of you know, said this. If we don't stop and practice peace, we won't recognize it. In this fallen world, peace doesn't come naturally to us. We need to practice being with him in order to experience shalom. Sabbath is God's classroom for us to practice peace. And how many of us don't show up for class and then wonder why we don't have peace? I think there's good in that. That word Sabbath, like shalom. It's a concept that existed in Jewish culture that we didn't bring forward into Christian culture. It was this idea that we would regularly stop and pause and rest and reflect. And we made it optional. It was one of of God's top ten commandments that his people were meant to keep. It was right next to don't murder people. And we ignore it, most of us. I certainly do. But Sabbath is God's classroom for us to experience this, to practice peace. Max Lucado says it another way. It's stark. God gave Sabbath to his people as a gift, but also as a command. He says, this was not a suggestion, recommendation, or a piece of practical advice. This was a command. Rest. Once a week, let the system reboot. Once a week, let the entire household slow down. The Israelite who violated this law paid for the sin with his or her life. Today, the death penalty is still in effect, but the death is a gradual one that comes from overwork, stress, and anxiety. I know that because of the way that I'm wired, changing my my circumstances have not caused the anxiety that's in me. And yet I know that I can engage in behaviors that will bring health to that. I know that when I go to God and I'm willing to pause and rest and reflect and ask God and bring these concerns to God, I am promised by Scripture that he will give me peace in the midst of that. That's one of the activities that we can do to experience the kind of contentment that Paul has. And so I want to do something right now that we don't often do. I want to take just a few minutes to do this together as a community to practice peace, to practice the presence of of God among us to pause and to quiet ourselves, to turn down the lights and to simply go to God and, and say what, what the, the psalmist David said that Chris pointed out the first week in Psalm 139, which is a beautiful passage that I would suggest reading regularly. But in it, David says to God, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I want to take just a couple minutes right now of quietness where you can say to God, God, search me, search my heart, search my mind, find those places that I might not even be aware of where I am running thin, where I am threadbare, where I'm tired. God, search me and reveal to me those places where I need your peace. I know that for some of you in this room, it's uncomfortable to be quiet. I'm one of those people. (laughs) well, let's just take a few minutes to pause and to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into us. There's a place in your notes where I've, I've put the, the phrase, search results. And I would invite you, if there's something that the Holy Spirit reveals to you and says, this is an area that you need to give to me, this is an area that I'm inviting you to ask, where the Holy Spirit says, what do you want me to do for you? That we would write that down. This is your notes to take. You don't have to share it or show it to anyone. But write that down. And during these next few minutes, offer those up to God. Say, God, this relationship, this career, this parenting, this whatever it is, is broken. Help. Fix it. Bring your peace into the situation. We're going to take a couple of minutes, and then when we're done, we're going to uh, celebrate, observe communion together. And I'll come back up, and I'll set that up. But right now, take a minute to pause.